Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine there's a place (sighs) someone leave a window open? Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A corridor of the mind, lined with metal file cases, stocked with dead birds lined up in rows, yellow, lime green, blue, flame red, like gems in a jewel case. This place, this aviary, stores the facts that matter, and matters of fact. It lies in a time between now and then. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Step outside to a house in Silver Spring, Maryland, in the year 1958. Rachel Carson, a nature writer, had just started work on a new book. She hadn't decided what to call it yet, but she knew what she wanted to say. People all over the country, bird lovers, noticed something in 1958. When spring came, the birds didn't come. The robins didn't come. The tufted titmice didn't come. The songbirds, the shorebirds, there were just very few birds. Carson threw herself into a world of research, even though she was busy, exhausted. She was taking care of both her adopted son, a six-year-old boy named Roger, and her 89-year-old mother, who was dying. Carson read and she researched all summer. That fall, the postman brought a package to her door, a gift for Roger. It was a vinyl record. American Bird Songs, Volume 1. Here are the songs and calls of 60 familiar birds as recorded in the woods, fields, and gardens of North America by the Laboratory of Ornithology at Cornell University. Some of the birds are widely distributed. Others are restricted to special habitat. Roger listened to this record over and over. Carson sat down to write a thank you note to the sender. One of our actors is going to read it, but let me just say first that I've listened to recordings of the actual Rachel Carson, who has sort of an odd voice, and this really is what she sounds like, so much so that it gives me the chills. The record of bird song that came Friday gave Roger the greatest delight. First, the thrill of receiving a package by mail, then the pleasure in the record itself. He has a very sweet feeling for all living things and loves to go out with me and look and listen to all that goes on. I know he will have great pleasure in recognizing the songs from this record. First, the mockingbird that still pours his song down our chimney, then the cardinals that begin to whistle in January and all the rest. There was a special and unheralded thrill for me in the record During the song of the wood peewee, I heard in the background the unmistakable voice of the veery, 
not once but several times, of all the bird song that has the quality of purest magic for me. Considered America's foremost songbird is the hermit thrush, now singing from a balsam spire in the Adirondack Mountains. How do you even record a hermit thrush atop a balsam spire in the Adirondack Mountains? And what happened to the birds in 1958? Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything anymore. A while ago, when I was researching an essay about Rachel Carson for The New Yorker, I got completely lost in these recordings of bird songs. Carson was writing a book while Roger played these 33s over and over again. It was called Silent Spring, and it changed the world. But I can't shake the feeling that if she were writing Silent Spring now, nothing would change. Carson is to me a kind of canary in a coal mine, a warning. People were able to listen to her then and to act on what she said in a way that people don't listen to warnings and act on them these days, until, it seems, it's too late. This season, we've been trying to solve a whodunit. Who killed truth? And this might sound nuts, but I decided to do what I thought maybe Carson would do. She would ask the birds. Next, the Viri's descending spirals. Rachel Carson was born in western Pennsylvania in 1907 on a 65-acre farm along the Allegheny River. Her mother took her for long walks, teaching her the names and songs of all the birds. This is almost always how it works, parent to child, the passing on of a body of knowledge. All her life, Carson was fascinated by birds. Wherever Carson went, she'd listen. And then there were the sounds of other smaller birds, the rattling call of the kingfisher that perched between forays after fish on the posts of the dock, the call of the phoebe that nested under the eaves of the cabin, the redstarts that foraged in the birches on the hill behind the cabin and forever, it seemed to me, asked each other the way to Wiscasset, for I could easily twist their syllables into the query, which is Wiscasset, which is Wiscasset? the oven bird, sometimes called teacher bird, from its song. People have always listened to birds, and they've been trying to write down their songs for thousands of years. A lot of birds, like the cuckoo or the chickadee, are named after the songs they sing. The first person to try to render birdsong in musical notation did that in the year 1650. 18th century scholars then tried to understand birdsong not as music, but as language. And people started trying to record the sound of birds in 1889, almost as soon as the phonograph was invented. As a little girl, Carson kept a list of birds, writing them down in a notebook when she spotted them. Counting birds, making bird lists, had just become a hobby in the United States. Bird enthusiasts hoped this hobby would replace bird hunting because people had begun to notice that certain species of birds were disappearing, especially one, the passenger pigeon, a dove. In the 17th century over North America, flocks of passenger pigeons rushing across the sky could block out the sun for hours and hours and hours. The flocks were huge, some estimated more than 200 miles long. You could knock passenger pigeons out of the sky with a stick by the dozens. People ate pigeon pot pie, broiled pigeons, roast pigeons, stuffed pigeon. You get the idea. They gorged on pigeons. By the middle of the 19th century, shooting passenger pigeons had become a sport. In 1869, one hunter made a bet that he could kill 500 in a single day. It took him only nine hours. Hunters would ride wagons out to pigeon nesting sites and slaughter them by the thousands, then ship the carcasses to cities by train on ice cars. You could make a lot of money shooting passenger pigeons. Or you could just do it for practice. Dead birds became a fashion, like fur coats. Women wore bird feathers on their hats, and sometimes whole birds. Terns, herons, gulls, egrets. In 1886, an ornithologist in New York counted the birds on women's hats. 
He spotted 174 birds from 40 species in just two days. Finally, by 1890, people began to notice that passenger pigeons had disappeared. Spring came, and the flocks didn't come back. Some people thought they'd migrated to Argentina or something. Those were the bird decline denialists. But most people weren't denialists. Newspaper writers began to lament this sad passing. Their children would never know a passenger pigeon. Toronto Globe and Mail, June 30th, 1900. The present generation knows little or nothing of wild pigeons except by hearsay and is apt to scoff at the stories of old-timers when they tell of the enormous flocks of these beautiful birds that numbered millions and fairly darkened the face of the sun in their flight or actually broke down large lines of trees when they sit on them. Some people tried to do something. They founded the first conservation movements, the Audubon Society, the American Ornithologists' Union. I believe you have an announcement to make. They held gatherings like this one on December 9th, 1909, in New York. Someone proposed a reward of $100 for a freshly killed passenger pigeon. The idea was to preserve it for posterity, or for science, or both. But people still had misgivings about killing birds, even for science. Dr. Hodge, you have something to say? Indeed, sir. I would not kill a specimen for $1,000 even to prove that I had seen one. And I wish that everyone else feels as I do. All offers for skins or dead birds ought to be withdrawn, because at the present crisis, these might result in killing the last pair. I wish to withdraw my offer of $1,000 for a freshly killed passenger pigeon. Well then, why not let your offer stand for the location of live specimen? I would gladly give $200 for that. I am authorized to offer the following award. $300 for first information of a nesting pair of wild passenger pigeons undisturbed. Once they finally got organized, bird lovers would go on to have a lot of influence. But for the passenger pigeon, it came too late. Boston Globe, December 18th, 1910. One solitary passenger pigeon ending her life at the zoological garden in Cincinnati is today all that remains of an American species that early in the last century swarmed over the continent in flocks numbering billions. Her name was Martha. When Rachel Carson was seven years old, Martha, the last passenger pigeon, died. The next year, eight-year-old Rachel wrote her very first story. It's about a pair of wrens looking for a house. She kept on writing and writing about birds. Countless discoveries made the day memorable. The bobwhite's nest, tightly packed with eggs. The oriole's aerial cradle. The framework of sticks, which the cuckoo calls a nest. And the lichen-covered home of the hummingbird. Carson went to college and then, in 1932, to graduate school, enrolling in a Ph.D. program at Johns Hopkins, studying zoology. But after a few years, she had to drop out to take a job, to feed her family. She never married, but during the Depression, she supported her parents and her sister and brother and their kids, too. She started working for what became the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, mainly writing reports and producing a radio program. She kept on thinking about birds, though. And so did a lot of other people. During the Second World War, the BBC tried to keep up its own long-standing tradition of broadcasting birdsong over the radio to help people keep calm and carry on. But in this recording, you can hear the sound of Royal Air Force bombers flying above the birds. After the war, Rachel Carson wrote a beautiful, stirring study of the sea, The Sea Around Us appeared in The New Yorker as a profile of the sea, The New Yorker's first-ever profile of something other than a person. It won a National Book Award and was on the New York Times bestseller list for a record-breaking 86 weeks. She bought a little summer house in Maine, where she wrote another bestseller, The Edge of the Sea, in 1955. 
She was still taking care of all her family, her mother and her niece, and her niece's little boy, Roger. That year, Carson took Roger for a walk in the woods. He was three. Roger went along to listen for Veery's, his first bird walk, I guess. And I'd like to have had a movie. He was told we'd have to be quiet, so he tiptoed along the path with elaborate caution, talking in a loud whisper. He seemed to find the whole experience very exciting. Roger's still around. My producer Ben and I drove out to his house to meet him and his wife Wendy in their old yellow lab. We came to talk about birds and about that album of bird song that had come in the mail in 1958. Um, Need any more microphones? Yeah, I see that I shouldn't have even bothered with the recording equipment. (laughs) Roger's in the recording business. That's why his house is full of microphones. But as for birds, he never got the bug the way Rachel Carson did. She tried very hard, but, you know, the truth is I was a little boy, and, uh, you know, I appreciated it, and I appreciate the birds, but, but you know, I was never... The house in Maine had the used to have these stairs that would go down, and she could go down there and lie there for three hours listening and looking at the birds. And, you know, I'd, I'd be lucky to make five minutes, you mm-hmm. know. Roger was kind of embarrassed that he didn't turn out to be a bird expert. Carson said that he was as lively as 17 crickets. He just couldn't sit still long enough, and quietly enough, to really watch birds. I get that. I don't have the bird bug either. I have more of the dog bug. Hi, baby. Hi. I just want to get get a word in here. (laughs) There were a lot of birds at the bird feeder outside Roger's window. Neither of us had any idea what a single one of them was. Instead, we played with his dog. Something else we have in common? We've both been in love at different times with this album. The Mockingbird is a favorite, singing an ever-changing medley, often repeating each phrase three to five times. The spring of 1958, after Roger turned six, That was the silent spring, when bird watchers noticed that there just weren't a lot of birds around. It turned out that the birds had been poisoned by DDT, a pesticide the towns had been spraying all over the country. Members of an organization called the Committee Against Mass Poisoning filed a lawsuit in New York to try to stop the spraying. They asked Carson to write about it. They also sent her that album of birdsong for Roger. Carson wanted to cover the trial, But taking care of Roger and her mother, she really wasn't in much of a position to. She thought, though, that another New Yorker writer maybe ought to cover the trial. It has occurred to me that E.B. White might be interested for various reasons, and it is the sort of thing he could be devastating about if he chose. I thought I might write him. E.B. White was one of the best-loved writers in the country. Dear Mr. White... It would delight me beyond measure if you should be moved to take up your own pen against this nonsense, though that is far too mild a word. There is an enormous body of fact waiting to support anyone who will speak out to the public, and I shall be happy to supply the references. Rachel Carson. White said no, that Carson should write the article. He later told her that he himself didn't know a chlorinated hydrocarbon from a squash bug. And so Carson did write the article. It took her four years, and it grew to the size of a book. It's the book she'd always be known for. It reads to me like a eulogy for the last passenger pigeon, Martha. As if all the birds were the last of their species. As if all the living things might disappear. There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. 
On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. For a long time, Carson called the book Man Against the Earth. Then she came up with a new title. Silent Spring was published in The New Yorker in the summer of 1962, and as a book a few months later. Afternoon. I have several announcements to make. The president, John F. Kennedy, was asked about it at a press conference. There appears to be growing concern among scientists as to the possibility of dangerous long-range side effects from the widespread use of DDT and other pesticides. Have you considered asking the Department of Agriculture or the Public Health Service to take a closer look at this? Yes, I, I, and I know that they uh, already are. I think particularly, of course, uh, since Ms. Carson's book, but uh, they are examining the matter. Few books have so wholly changed the world. Ms. Carson's book led to the passage of the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Wilderness Act, the Endangered Species Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, and it helped establish the Environmental Protection Agency. At least for a while, too, the spraying of DDT slowed down. Today, it's not just the birds. It's not just DDT. It really is man against the earth. We've poisoned the entire planet with carbon emissions. We've changed the very climate. Clean water, clean air. When it comes to carbon, there is no silence. There's a flood of fossil fuel industry PR, great gushing gobs of it, like Exxon, touting its clean gas. Over one million miles to prove that Exxon's advanced clean engine formula will keep entire fuel systems running clean and intake valves free of deposits. It did. When the birds went silent, and Rachel Carson noticed and wrote about it, that changed everything. Now, we notice everything. The species extinctions, the rising temperatures, the melting ice, the frightening weather, the floods and fires, the refugees, the spread of diseases, the pandemics. We notice, but we don't do nearly enough. Why? I still think the birds have an answer. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Morse code of the yellow-bellied sapsucker is less regular than the drum of other woodpeckers, and its call note is harsh. I mean, like you collect baseball cards, yeah. you you yeah. have dinosaurs, you you count birds, you yeah. uh, you. Uh, How old were you when you started counting birds? Uh, 
three. You're I mean, kidding! That's Ken Rosenberg, an applied conservationist at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca, New York. He's lead author of a huge study published in the journal Science. It demonstrated that close to three billion birds have disappeared from the United States and Canada since 1970. My producer Ben and I went to see him at Cornell, and we went for a walk to listen for birds in a sanctuary called Sapsucker Woods. Cardinal. What are we seeing over there? That was a cardinal. Okay. I felt haunted there by Rachel Carson. I don't know that she'd ever been to Sapsucker Woods, but it's a place she would have loved. While she was writing Silent Spring, she'd been in unbearable pain from surgery and radiation. She could barely walk. She'd been treated for tumors on her breasts, and cancer had spread. She'd go on TV wearing a wig. She testified before Congress, hiding from everyone, that she'd come in on a wheelchair. She died in 1964, only 56 years old. She had her ashes spread in the sea. Her ideas spread everywhere, in the flight of every bird. Rachel Carson's, one of Rachel Carson's close friends was Chandler Robbins, mm-hmm. who worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and, the, and they would go birdwatching together. In response to Rachel's work, Chandler Robbins created the Breeding Bird Survey, the North American Breeding Bird mm-hmm. Survey, and it was just this vision he had that, wow, we could count birds everywhere, and it is the primary source of all our bird data. That's mm-hmm. what our whole paper was really based mm-hmm. on, was... Mm-hmm. 50 years of breeding bird survey data. It's as if Carson is one of Rosenberg's co-authors. I love that. And birds are a body of evidence. After the disappearance of the passenger pigeon, the Audubon Society had urged people not to hunt birds, but to go out and count them. And they did. Their lists had just kept piling up, count after count after count. Data. Every year at Christmas, there's this thing called the Christmas bird count all over the country. People get up in the morning go meet up in a assigned spot with other birders and fan out to count birds. It's like the U.S. Census, except not every 10 years, every year. And not done by a government agency, but just by regular people. Bird counting is probably the richest kind of citizen science ever known. We had a data mm-hmm. set from 1970 to 2017, mm-hmm. a 48-year data set. And that was the primary data set. We also... Um, we also used the Christmas bird count, which dates back even farther. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty blown away when we ran those numbers and found this net loss of 3 billion birds across 529 species. Mm-hmm. So that's the big story, mm-hmm. is that not only are a lot of species declining in their population, but we're seeing this tremendous total overall loss of abundance of birds which is what's going to have, you know, bigger effects on, e- on the ecosystems. The abundant red-eyed vireos in the treetops can become monotonous in the regularity of their short, robin-like phrases. I started asking Rosenberg about how they made those recordings decades ago, and he said he really didn't know anything about them. But then, just at that moment... A guy just happened to walk past on this little wooden bridge we were on, and Rosenberg called him over. Actually, Leo probably knows, but because he does tours of the lab. But. Leo Sack, a public programs assistant and librarian at the lab. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, a historic expert That's on okay. this. You're, you're our expert the of the moment. Department yeah. here, and yes. so he is, uh, I'm on the visitor center team. I do some tours of the building. So my understanding is that in 1929, Fox Movie Tone approached Arthur Allen and said, we have new technology that we're trying out, putting sound into movies um, instead of having silent films, and we want to show off this new technology uh, using birdsong, and can you help us get some recordings of birdsong? Arthur A. Allen was the guy who started the lab here. Also, he is the voice on that old Cornell birdsong album. This is him! The Woodthrush delivers its shorter phrases from Canada to Florida. In 1915, the year after Martha, the passenger pigeon, died, Professor Allen taped up a sign on his office door. It said, Laboratory of Ornithology. (laughs) The door was just a door to his office, but he planted his flag. I like to think of that lab as a little like the last archive. Imagine there's a place in our world where the birds go. So when Fox Movie Tone came to Arthur Allen about recording birds, of course he said yes. 
And the story, as I've heard it, is that they started out chasing the birds around with their big heavy equipment and songbirds being songbirds flew away. Uh, but fortunately, Dr. Allen um, was very interested in the behaviors uh, of birds and so could figure out things like where was the bird likely to perch on its own and sing. And so they uh, set up their equipment, pointed at a likely spot, walked away from it, and sure enough, uh, some of the birds came uh, and sang into their uh, microphones. Oh, that's excellent. I can't believe you were just yeah, walking this, that by. Was, that was the most fortuitous thing. It's like, like you swooped down and like, dropped oh, out of the sky. So it may be rarer than catching a songbird with a recording device. That album, American Bird Songs, that a friend of Carson's had mailed to Roger in 1958, much of it was recorded in these very woods. Here are the songs and calls of 60 familiar birds as recorded in the woods, fields, and gardens of North America by the Laboratory of Ornithology at Cornell University. Unless otherwise stated, they were recorded in central New York State. There are three billion fewer birds in the U.S. and Canada now than there were then. And we wouldn't even know this if it weren't for all the bird counting that people do. Ken Rosenberg's study doesn't make an argument about what's causing this decline. But a lot of other research points to climate change. And as Rosenberg's study says, all other threats to birds are exacerbated by climate change. Within one human lifetime, within my lifetime, we've lost more than a quarter of our birds. Silent spring, silent century. Through the night, the incessant calls of the whippoorwill can be heard from New Brunswick to northern Georgia. Once I started looking for people obsessed with recorded birds, I found them everywhere. John Fitzpatrick, director of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, was eight when he first heard an LP of North American bird songs. Because I was a bird geek. And I, I wanted to understand what the bird songs were that I was listening to. And so I memorized all the bird songs of Minnesota from that record. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard of this place. I love that. Arthur Allen created the lab. Then his voice on that record of bird song taught young John Fitzpatrick to love birds. Everyone calls him Fitz. And now Fitz is the man behind eBird, an online crowdsourced bird database. The lab does all kinds of different things. Fitz has a whole room in the lab basement with drawers filled with stuffed birds. They even had a passenger pigeon. But of all the things they do at the lab, the place where Fitz really lit up was when he showed us the collection of birdsong. So this is the the uh, archive of the original. This is like this is like Mecca. This is like you're, you're in the largest physical repository of natural sounds in the world here. Um, hundreds of thousands of recordings uh, in this in this room. Just You can lock the door behind you and leave us here for the weekend. Yeah, isn't this fun? Every bird you can imagine across decades and decades. I guess if you love a thing, you want to hold on to every detail about it. Put it in a lab, keep it in a drawer, record it on wax, lock it in an archive. But these bird songs aren't just sitting here. Fitz is on a mission, a mission to change Hollywood's bird illiteracy. So most movie makers don't know that a lot of us can actually tell what Uh that bird is and that Uh that's in the wrong continent. Uh, You know, you hear loons in in Africa and you hear morning warblers in South American rainforests. And it's crazy. The good filmmakers, Lucas, uh, Terry Malick, Spielberg... (laughs) Uh, these guys, when they need a track, they actually they want to get a track from the authorities mm-hmm. who know what birds are there, mm-hmm. and they can get the best recordings possible. Mm-hmm. And they come here. Yeah, and they come here. So let's see, Harry Potter movies. Mm-hmm. They use sounds the from here. Yeah. The owls, the griffin. Say hello to Buckbeak. In fact, this is a true story. That griffin which makes this sort of weird screeching sound yeah. when it's flying. That screeching yeah. sound is a limpkin. It's, a, it's an American um, 
snail-eating bird that looks like a heron. Mm -hmm. And it's got a very wild sound. And they used the Limpkin sound. The particular recording they used was recorded by Arthur Allen. Mm -hmm. Most fascinating of all the sounds that come from the larger southern swamplands are the weird cries of the Limpkins. Perhaps they've given rise to some of the superstitions that haunt our fast-disappearing marshes. After explaining to us about hippogriffs, Fitz took us to see a machine that the lab had invented, some AI gizmo that's supposed to be able to name birds by listening to bird songs. And one day, it's supposed to be able to count birds by listening to those songs. It's not citizen science, it's computer science. But Fitz is way better than the machine. Okay. It got the goldfinch correct. That should be Canada goose. Watching Fitz try to beat the AI machine, I found myself wondering about other ways that we can know about change over time. Aside from birds. I was getting a little tired of listening to birds, to be honest. And then, okay, stick with me. I started thinking about another kind of bird song. Tweets. You can count tweets, human tweets, on Twitter. Sort of like the way you can count bird calls. And someone has. Fran Moore is an assistant professor in the UC Davis Department of Environmental Science and Policy. And she's the lead author of A Study of Tweets. She and her team collected more than two billion Twitter posts about the weather. The idea for this paper came from the observation that everyone talks about the weather. It's a kind of almost a kind of universal phenomenon that wherever you go, you can you can have <laughs> right, a conversation it's the about chit-chat. the weather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. American Tweets, Volume One. Here are the tweets and posts of several high-volume Twitter accounts, as recorded on smartphones and laptops across North America. It's so hot, dog. Something about a rainy day. So cozy. It's pretty warm. I'm so mad about the snow outside. OMG. I swear, when it comes to driving in the rain, people in Southern California are idiots on the road. The weather is nuts. Okay, so I'd rather listen to birdsong. But more study. It's genius. What I thought was cool about the study was, you know, how do you how do you measure the phenomenon of, you know, the remarkability of temperature? And with these new large social media data sets, it can allow us to get at these questions and to measure the phenomenon in a, in a really kind of comprehensive way. Moore designed a study to measure the remarkability of climate based on geolocated tweets about the weather. Her study's actually weirdly a lot like Ken Rosenberg's bird study, kind of mixed up with Fitz's lab study of birdsong. Think about Twitter as human birdsong. And then the Twitter feed is a kind of citizen science. We are the birds. But we're collecting our own data, worrying about our own demise, long before coronavirus. Because even then, there was plenty to worry about. You know, I think there's one theory of change that that maybe um, some people have, which is really that eventually climate change will just become so bad, it will become obvious that we have to do something about it. It will kind of, the Mm -hmm. urgency of it will become immediately apparent and we'll get everyone on board and we'll kind of collectively come to this realization. But that's the time by which it's too late to do anything. (laughs) Remarkability changes rapidly with repeated exposure to unusual temperatures. Fran Moore and her team wrote in their report. In other words, we get used to new weather in something between two and eight years. You don't compare this year's weather to the weather of your childhood. You compare this year's weather to last year's weather. It turns out we get used to a new climate really fast, even if it's killing us. It really is an epistemological problem. It's not quite an evidentiary problem. We have endless evidence. Fossil fuel companies have been suppressing that evidence for decades. But I mean, man, the jig is up. Still, it's not easy to pay attention to that evidence for the reasons Moore's study illustrates. Who killed truth? Exxon, Shell, yes, goddammit. But also, the slowness of time. It's so hard to notice. That makes it even more impressive that Rachel Carson did. Over increasingly large areas of the United States, Spring now comes unheralded by the return of the birds, and the early mornings are strangely silent, where once they were filled with the beauty of bird song. It can be hard to notice change that takes place on so long a timescale, a human lifetime or even longer, like climate change. 
DDT, that stuff was sprayed one day, and the next day the world seemed quieter. You could notice that. You could file a lawsuit to stop the spraying. You could write a book. Also, the DDT industry, the DDT lobby, was tiny. The fossil fuel industries are gigantic, and they control a massive part of the world's economy. Then, too, climate change is slower. Still, you can see it, and people have been writing books about it for a very long time. Rachel Carson first wrote about it in 1950, 12 years before she published Silent Spring. It is now established beyond question that a definite change in the Arctic climate set in about 1900, that it became astonishingly marked about 1930, and that it is now spreading into subarctic and temperate regions. The frigid top of the world is very clearly warming up. After writing about DDT and Silent Spring, Carson started working on a new book about the warming of the seas. But of course, by then she was dying. The December after Silent Spring came out, she fainted from pain in a department store while shopping for a Christmas present for Roger. She was buying him a record player. Roger would lose her not long afterward. But what if she'd finished that book? the book she'd wanted to write about climate change decades and decades and decades ago. We live in an age of rising seas. In our own lifetime, we are witnessing a startling alteration of climate. Carson never wrote that book. I still think a lot, though, about what might have happened if she had, if she'd lived long enough. She wrote Sound Spring at a time when books were a big deal. She could go on CBS at a time when there were only three television networks. And she could testify before Congress at a time when Congress wasn't polarized, a time when laws actually got written and passed. That's why I wish, so dearly, that she'd lived to write the book she planned to write about the warming of the seas. Before the political chaos, before the no-holds-barred defense of the fossil fuel industry, before internet-driven conspiracy theories, before social media mob rule, before the virus, silent killer of our spring. We went back out to Sapsucker Woods to listen to the birds, then back to our hotel. Turned in for the night, we had one more place to go in the morning. find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. The last place Ben and I went during our visit to Cornell was the archive. Entering the crotch library. Crotch library? Crotch library? <laughs> There's another story about the silence of birds, written by someone who'd been an undergraduate at Cornell when it first founded its laboratory of ornithology. E.B. White. His papers are at Cornell. An archivist, Aisha Neely, had pulled a few folders for us. 
Morning. Yes. In 1958, when Rachel Carson had asked E.B. White to write the book that became Silent Spring, she thought of White because he was such a charming writer and because he wrote a lot about nature. Stuart Little in 1945, Charlotte's Webb in 1952. I don't think Carson really wanted White to write about DDT. She was really just slyly getting his help and pitching the story to The New Yorker. Anyway, Carson and White had stayed close. And after Carson died, White wrote one last children's book, The Trumpet of the Swan, an elegy for the earth. On a lonely pond on a day in spring, some baby swans were hatched. One of the young swans had a problem. He had come into the world without a voice. He couldn't utter a sound. I have written the story of this little swan, and I will read it to you. During the whole of our visit to Ithaca, I'd been overwhelmed by this scale, the enormity of evidence for species extinction and for climate change, all that bird data, billions and billions of observations, people wandering in the woods and fields, along beaches, counting birds. Then there's the study of billions of tweets. But sitting in that archive with E.B. White's papers... I remembered how badly people also need stories. Fables. The fifth signet was different. He opened his mouth but didn't say a thing. He made an effort to say beep, but no sound came. I think he came into the world lacking a voice. A young male swan will be greatly handicapped in finding a mate if he is unable to say, Koho, Koho. Nearly everyone we talked to for this episode, they'd first gotten fascinated with birds and the natural world as little kids. That's one reason Ben and I were in the E.B. White archive, to read letters to him that had been written by little kids. This is a pack of letters from the combination second and third grade classroom. Dear Mr. White, I am a pupil from St. Leo's Primary School in Altona North. My name is Diana And I'm 11 years of age. I have read both of your books, Trumpet of the Swan and Charles Webb. When I was reading the books, they really got to me because they are so interesting. Lots of other people have read your books, and they feel the same way about them. The books you wrote really make sense. Not like other books. (laughs) 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 You're right, Speck. Dear Diane, I'm glad you think the books make sense. (laughs) (laughs) The books make sense. Stories make sense. If Carson were writing today, she'd get death threats on Twitter. E.B. White, he got love letters from children. Dear Mr. E.B. White, our teacher, Mrs. McElnahay, read Charlotte's Web to our third grade class earlier this year. We enjoyed it very much. This past month, she read The Trumpet of Swan. So many interesting things resulted from your book that we thought you might like to hear about them. We decided to write a class poem about The Trumpet of the Swan. We discussed the order of events in the story and put down our ideas on two lines at a time. The poem we wrote is enclosed with this letter. Now here's the poem. Louis, a downy signet, was born, a trumpeter swan without a horn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't want to laugh at their poem. Louis, a downy signet, was born, a trumpeter swan without a horn. Sam, a boy who, like the young swan, would often sit by the clear, quiet pond. Louis could not even say, Coho. So the cob stole a trumpet for Louis to blow. Louis played taps at a camp for boys to earn the money to pay for the noise. Louis married Serena, and new signets were born, and Louis played on with his shiny horn. By the third grade class, Hilliard Elementary School, Room 20. Dear Mr. White, blah, 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 love your books. Do you like swans? I do. My grandparents live on a saltwater pond, and sometimes when we're visiting, swans swim up to the shore looking for food. A fine feathered friend, Stephen. Dear Stephen, I liked your letter. Thanks for writing. I never see swans here at home, only geese. But I think I would like swans. They are admirable birds. Reading those letters, it was like listening to the best bird song. Lyrical and clear noble and proud, call and response. They gave us faith, and they gave us hope. Maybe people can be admirable birds, too. From the last archive, Coho.
The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadef Hafri. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Jason Gambrell and Martine Gonzalez are our engineers. Fact checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger Jones, Jesse Henson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emmanuel Parent. The Last Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Simon Leake, to Ryan McKittrick in the American Repertory Theater, to Scott Edwards, to Aisha Neely at Cornell, the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and everyone at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rustic, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Oliver riskin Emily Spector, and Henrietta Riley, who we'd like to specially thank for all of her help with Birdsong. I'm Jill Lepore. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hi, Last Archive listeners. I want to tell you about another podcast to add to your queue, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Jordan's podcast is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can come to your own conclusions about what's happening in the world. He dives into the minds of fascinating people, from authors and activists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his recent deep dive into modern flat-earth theory, and why some still believe the Earth is flat despite thousands of years of evidence to the contrary. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show, whether it's asking for advice the right way or discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.